Hi, my name is Grace Slick, and you are listening to Tomano. The Mike Tomano Happening. Welcome to this week's edition of the Mike Tomano Happening. I am Mike, and uh, thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe. Make sure you tell your friends that there's interesting conversations with amazing people happening right here. And as we speed toward 2022, I reflect back on 2021 and see, amongst other things, that year as the birth of this forum of expression in my career. And a big thank you to all who have listened and, of course, the amazing people we've had the opportunity to chat with. I have to give a big shout-out to Jackie Martling and Tom Leopold, two people I really admire. They agreed to jump on board with a completely new show and help me launch it. So thank you, gentlemen, and to all the other guests who took time out of their busy schedules to let me interview them. We know when the holidays come around, a lot of PR and promotions people take pretty much the whole two months off so it's a bit of a challenge to book people but i'm also looking at it as an opportunity to dig into the archives of my radio career and dig out some interviews that i've conducted and also you know i've been pondering ways to expand this podcast and have it grow to the next level so we'll have some surprises and some uh, format expansions in 2022 let's see Uh, uncle mikey's media buffet as of late i finally popped the blu-ray edition of peter jackson's king kong and the player and turned my wife on to what i considered excellence in filmmaking a true love letter to his favorite movie peter jackson epic filmmaker you know now some of the lord of the rings segments went a little long in that trilogy for me i remember going to see the second one in the trilogy with my wife and my sister-in-law and I got up when the hobbits were traversing this mountainside and I got up, went to get some popcorn and uh, probably go to the washroom and whatever and came back and they were still walking. So, I mean, there's a lot of expanded scenes. You know, Kubrick did that a lot too. And I guess there's something to be said about the magic of the photography that's going on in a majestic film such as Lord of the Rings or, you know, looking at Kubrick, uh, Barry Lyndon. Some of those scenes were just like oil paintings and they took their time with them. So that's the art of filmmaking. It's probably being um, someone who likes to get to the end of a book, you know. Uh, Maybe I should learn to savor the words more. And it's the same thing with film. Maybe there's something to be said about long, long scenes. But I digress. I I turned my wife on to this movie because I love it. And it's action-packed. It's a great love story. And it's a wonderful retelling of the classic Kong tale. Now, of course, any remake of a film brings out the haters. And this one, admittedly, had its detractors before it even was released. And I even took some time getting around to watch it. It's a 2005 release. I probably didn't get to it i don't remember seeing it in the theater because i think i was turned off by the three hour running time that's too long for me to sit in the theater and so i waited 
till it came out on DVD to catch it. So it was probably 2010 or so, or 2015, by the time I got around to seeing it. And my initial reaction, you know, I loved it. It was action-packed. It was wonderful. It was filmed beautifully. The CGI was state-of-the-art. Naomi Watts was incredible. Aiden Brody was incredible. And I remember thinking that Jack Black was out of his league with actors of that level. You know, I, I didn't want to have a prejudice towards Jack. But I was thinking that another take for many of the scenes that included Jack were merited. And that led me to conclude that maybe perhaps Jackson had a challenge directing him. But I mean, he's fine. And the the movie is an absolute joy. A timeless love story, a jungle adventure, good old-fashioned creature feature. I mean, it's everything that I love about stories, and it's everything that I've always loved about King Kong. The original King Kong, dear to my heart, an early discovery of movie magic for me as a really young child. I was probably four or five, watching it during the Halloween season on local television. I remember it was a TV show hosted in the afternoon. It was like an afternoon movie show in Chicago, hosted by a woman who had a an exercise mat laid out, and she would do like yoga and exercise and then have a movie. You know, she would introduce the movie. And during Halloween, she would have the Hammer Horror films and Phantom of the Opera and things like that. And so that was my obsession as a young child. I remember crying when King Kong fell to his death because I couldn't I couldn't believe he was dead. I was my heart was broken. And I remember like, again, I was like four years old. My father consoled me and told me that King Kong wasn't dead. He was just knocked out. And eventually, you know, that notion rang true because the mighty Kong took on Godzilla in a movie that I would soon catch on Friday night's Creature Features on WGN-TV in the classic horror movie slot on Friday or Saturday nights. And one of my pet peeves in discussing a film like this is when someone says, well, I prefer the original. Well, there are two different versions of a timeless mythology and story. You know, I mean, you know, do you prefer Greystoke? It's like comparing a Tarzan movie made in the last 30 years to Johnny Weissmuller in the 40s. It's a, the mythology is more than just the film. And I'm not the biggest fan of unnecessary remakes. And I've been known to, you know, voice my dismay at certain films being remade because the, the originals were perfection. And I, But then again, I didn't hate Rob Zombie's Halloween, but I took it on its own merits, not in comparison to Carpenter's masterpiece. I mean, stories can be retold or reimagined, but there's always a slippery slope and there's always the comparison to the original. But in the case of King Kong, the original film is almost 100 years old and it's a mythology that has spread far beyond its original version. You know, it's like saying, I prefer the Passion of the Christ to Jesus Christ Superstar. But anyway, if you haven't seen Peter Jackson's King Kong, how timely my uh, <laughs> my show is. Uh, it's only what it's it's only 16 years old, so you might want to get around to watching it. But I, I, I recommend it highly. In my attempt to embrace the cold and gray Midwestern winter season, I've been spinning some John Carpenter soundtracks, The Fog, Prince of Darkness, Halloween 3, just kind of trying to match the music to my landscape on my uh, rural drive to and from work. I've also decided to delve into some fiction reading as the vast majority of my reading tends to be biographies and history and such. Uh, I'm cruising through horror writer Brian Keene's Dark Hollow, and it's, it's, it's fun and 
it's very ambitious so i'll uh, i'll give you the uh, update once i finish it but today we're going to dig into the archives with two rock and roll legends grace slick and john anderson thanks for checking out the mike tomano happening here's an interview i did with the amazing grace slick from february 18th 2010 on my morning radio show the legendary grace slick what an honor it is to have you rock and roll royalty with us grace slick well thank you it's a pleasure having you and let me tell you something i grew up listening to now first of all my mother was a flower child so she like laid on surrealistic pillow to me you know because yeah. that, that was like that was like the breakthrough album for you guys yeah it was uh but there were several groups that right at about that time 66 67 just uh shot up um and we all kind of um got in the mix together right and, and like surrealistic pillow came out and I remember just loving the, you know your the, your voice and the and the playing with the with the band. But then, as a music fan, you delve a little deeper and you get into Volunteers and Crown of Creation and After Bathing at Baxter's, and you're like, wow, this is a complete musical journey. And I think people need to go back and rediscover those albums because they are very very unique. Well, thank you. What was the dynamic like writing with those guys back then? What was the process, the creative process for the Airplane in the early days? Well, we didn't really write together. What would happen is uh, odd combinations of things. Like uh, once Yorma gave me a tape, and all the music was already on it. He said I need lyrics, but he had a title. It's uh, um, he'd give me strange titles like Milk Train, <laughs> you know, and then okay, Milk Train. Uh, how do I? So that would happen. Uh, Paul would, I had uh, scribblings of stuff um, that I would write down that I thought were either interesting or maybe I wanted to work on. And Paul would say, can I use that line? Sure. So we didn't just sit down and write together, but we'd sort of interact in some odd fashion. <laughs> yeah, and everybody in that band uh, paved the way for for great people to follow. You were one of the first pop star ladies in front of the band doing like a like a frontman thing that was always reserved for, you know, macho dudes. You were kind of bringing this this beautiful, graceful, no pun intended, front person to the forefront which uh, you opened the door for tons of people. You must get this every day, people thanking you. Well, no, it was meant to be um, Marty and I, the, a uh, single and duet front people. I wasn't uh, chosen to front the band. It was M Marty and I, basically. Well, yeah, but you were prettier than Marty, so that's... Uh, well... <laughs> <laughs> that's why the spotlight... And Marty Balin, another... He he was... Uh, he didn't seem as psychedelicized as the rest of the band. Am I accurate in that assumption? Well, the thing that I liked about the band, actually, was that we were all completely different in where our focus was. Uh, Jack and Yorma were blues-oriented, uh, folk blues. Paul was um, folk, uh, lets everybody go to the moon. He loved outer space. I was kind of dark and sarcastic, and Marty was uh, a love song guy. Yeah. So you, it was like a smorgasbord. You know, he really uh, got a little bit of everything on our albums. And the band had a life outside of itself. Uh, you, you know, uh, you and, and Paul did a lot of great stuff together. Uh, well, that's because we couldn't find uh, Jack and Yorma. 
They had gone to Europe to do some speed skating, but we didn't even know what country they were in. We figured they were in Scandinavia <laughs> somewhere, but we didn't know where they were. We didn't hear from them for a year. So we just started making our own albums. Right. There was an adventurous nature about living back then, wasn't there? Yeah. And I think that's we've lost the point. that. Uh, when you get old, and I'm realizing that um, I've known this for a long time, even when I was young, life is very short. It's not what you did that you regret. It's what you didn't do. Right. In other words, I didn't learn how to ride a horse. I didn't do Jimi Hendrix and Peter O'Toole when I could have. <laughs> I, you know, there's, there's a, I had that same problem with Peter O'Toole. I don't know. <laughs> well, he was gorgeous when he was younger. Right. I mean, we all look up terrible now because we're all over 70, and nobody who's over 70 looks good. I think you look Lena wonderful. Horn. Well, I think you look That's wonderful. That's about it. <laughs> you look a little silly uh, saying lyrics that uh, a lot of them are talking about yourself when you're at an age of about 25 and you're singing them when you're 60. Right, like Pete Townsend singing Hope I Die Before I Get Old at 60. Yeah, well, yeah right. I'm so late for that song. <laughs> right. uh, but, you know, I don't say get out of the music business. If you love music, stay in the music business and produce or A&R or run a record company or, I mean, there's any number of things you can do without looking like a sap. I want to go back to you know, the fact that you were taking such liberties with creativity back in the days of, you know, the late 60s. And I think that was encouraged by record companies. But you couldn't go to a record company today with a uh, with a Blows Against the Empire or a Sunfighter album or or even Red Octopus, for that matter, because it was so diverse today and pitch it to a record company. Well, the record companies don't really care actually, if you want to get honest about it, what you're talking about or what your music's like, they want to see if you can put asses in the seats. Mm -hmm. And when they see that, which they saw with uh, Grateful Dead and, and uh, CSNY and, and uh, Blue Velvet and whatever, uh, they see that we're filling auditoriums. That's what they like. I just think that the, the, the diversity of the music, they wouldn't be able to label you so easily these days. Well, they didn't really label us then because they didn't know what to label us. What right. they were used to was Dinah Shore yeah, and right. Rosemary Clooney. <laughs> right. I mean, Rosemary and uh, Janice and I were so far away from Rosemary Clooney and Dinah Shore that they didn't know what to call us. Uh, Herb Kane called us hippies. Now, everybody picked that one up. He was a San Francisco Chronicle uh, columnist, mm -hmm. and he called us hippies. Uh, but people picked that up, but the record companies didn't call us that. They just called us, these guys are going to make us money, is what they called us. <laughs> right, the, the money makers, very yeah. good. So do you go back and listen to the record collection? Uh, what are some of your favorite? No, but my daughter dragged me out yesterday. She lives uh, here with me on the um, property over a, in a suite over the garage. And she said, uh, Mom, come on, you got to listen to this. And I thought maybe it was Dave Matthews or something. Right. So I went out and listened to it, and it was actually me. Uh, she likes the song... Um, Fast Buck Freddy. Sure. And, uh, and some other song she wanted to play me, and then her car died. So we had to stop. <laughs> the battery just was shot. So, But I listened to it, and I thought, those are really good lyrics. I'm not as... Uh, um, I don't brag about my voice very much because it's limited. I do fairly well with what I've got, but I've got a note about a four-note range, and, <laughs> and they're all... All four notes are loud. Right. So... Uh, <laughs> 
I listened to it and I thought, wow, I like those lyrics. Because uh, lyrics about, baby, you've left me and I'm miserable, really bore me to death. I, I just, I've never been that interested in uh, somebody's uh, problems with their boyfriend. But uh, I like odd lyrics. Right. Which means I shouldn't be an A and R because they don't really connect with people. I'm not a singles writer. I write album cuts or wrote album cuts, and uh, so and that's what appeals to me is weird stuff. Right, Triad, the song Triad. That, well, yeah, but that was um, um, that was a Crosby tune. The, well, yeah, Crosby was with another group. You know, Crosby was with another group, and they wouldn't let him sing it. So he brought it over, and he said, I bet you could sing this. And I said, I bet I could. Yeah, and boy, that's... our band didn't, but nobody let anybody do anything. We just did stuff. And, uh, you know, if Yorma wanted to sing about turtles, fine. If Paul <laughs> wanted to sing about go, going to outer space, okay, great. Uh, so I sang the song Triad, because I had watched David Crosby actually do that, live that. And he lived it very well, thank you. The women were happy. He was happy. Uh, I remember Paul and I took a seaplane uh, down to Crosby's boat uh, somewhere off the coast of Florida. And it was anchored, and we got there, and there were all these nude, tan people running around, and the girls mm-hmm. were lovely, and they were serving everybody fruit and, uh, you know, wh- whatever the kind of food they had on there. And I got off, and I was real skinny and white. And I thought, I'm not taking my clothes off in front of this, not because I'm against it, just because I am not going to go up against these women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Lightly to tan for a while, right? But but yeah, but Crosby's got these two women uh, running around helping him out, and everybody's happy. And uh, so the song Triad is about that. Why can't we go on a street? Right. If everybody's happy, who cares? Right on. And they, well, you know, the people were willing to uh, to kind of experiment back then. I think that, that well, we need to bring it, that it, back. Yeah, it's also done by real uh, heavy religious people. In other words, they've got that thing on, I don't know if it's HBO or Showtime or something, called Big Love. Sure. And uh, it's uh, the, of course, that usually, though, cannot be reversed. In other words, you you don't take a woman with a whole bunch of men. Somebody was talking about uh, Sandra Bullock. Uh, apparently, Jesse James has been screwing around. So the people on television this morning, the news, were saying, she's an Oscar winner, she's good-looking, she's blah, blah, blah. What? And I wanted to call them up and say, don't you get it? After all, it's, a, it's not about how marvelous she is, it's about strange. Yeah, right. I want some strange. I want something that's different. Because what uh, guys and women want is the excitement of something different. It doesn't have to be uh, better looking than you. It doesn't have to be smarter. It doesn't have to be anything. It just has to be different. Right. Well, so I don't. Human beings are not made genetically to be monogamous. We just aren't. So it is. Sort. We forced it on ourselves so that you can have a family and bring up the children. And uh, women have a about a four year three to four year range of when you start getting bored and want strange. Well, I'll keep that in mind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you may act on it or not. Right. I've noticed that over time. I've watched my friends. I've watched me. It's three, four years. You go, okay, next. 
Right. <laughs> well, we're we're talking with Gray Slick, and and it's just incredible to hear. I could just pick your brain all day about the great stories. I'm, I am going to play word association with some musicians. Uh, indeed, uh, what was it like to be in the presence of Jimi Hendrix, and, and what kind of things did you folks talk about? Well, it uh, it was stunning because I think. A lot of us had heard each other's records, but we had not seen each other live uh, at the uh, Monterey Pop Festival, which is 1967. Right. So I had never seen The Who. I'd never seen Jimi Hendrix. I'd never seen, <clears throat> excuse me, Ravi Shankar. Uh, so the first time you see Jimi, I mean, he had lighter foot, but... The lighter fluid, the outfits that he wore, and the fact that he could really play guitar. We were all standing at the edges of the stage like slack-jawed idiots with a little drool coming out going, look at this guy. Yeah, what is he doing? Yeah, here it goes. He's just amazing. So uh, that was my first introduction to Jimi Hendrix. And I, because he was lived primarily in England at the time, I didn't see that much of him. That's Like I said before, I never got to do Jimi Hendrix. But if I had it to live over again, I certainly would have had my people call his people. You know? <laughs> Is that how it worked back? I think that's how it works now a lot of times. Well, I never heard that in, until I moved to L.A. San Francisco's not that, uh, uh, you know, entertainment industry. Right. We have entertainers coming out of San Francisco, but it's not really an industry town. Down here, where I live now in L.A., uh, it, you know, those phrases go on all the time. But it never occurred to me to have my people call his people. I thought it was direct, always. You know, if you if I had ever gone to a party where Jimi Hendrix was there, and I never did, because uh, I didn't know him that well, um, I think I would have made my, my point. I would have gone up to be around him and talk to him right. and hope that maybe I could, uh, you know, go home that evening with him. <laughs> but I was never at a party. I never had the chance. Right. But it never occurred to me to have somebody else do it, like my people call your people. Right. That's L.A. Yeah, that's a, that's an L.A. thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna just ask you about some of my favorite musicians, some of the icons that you may have brushed up against, and you being one of them. Have you spent time with Bob Dylan at all? No, I saw I did see him at a party, but he had an expression on his face that looked like, "Don't anybody ever come over and talk to me." Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but I you think that's permanent. permanent. Yeah, it might be a permanent. He was not fixture. looking like a happy guy, and I thought, well, I, I, I don't think I want to go over there and bother that. Right. Right. <laughs> How about Jerry Garcia? I know you, you've... Just... Well, Garcia I knew. Yeah. Because uh, he lived... He, you know, San Francisco bands I knew. Right. Uh, but the thing is about when you're in a rock and roll band, you're, you're moving all the time. You don't have uh, the opportunity to stop and really get to know people. The people you know the best are the people in your band. And you're with them every day. It's like being married to six different people. Right. right. Uh, because it's constant, and it's 24 hours a day. But um, at first, we all lived in San Francisco, so we were able to hang out. So I love Jerry Garcia. Um, Grateful Dead music is not that interesting to me. I mean, I liked it, but it didn't knock my socks off. Um, but I liked him as a person. Right. He was very bright, talented. And he listened when people talked, and you know he was—he would do an interchange. He could communicate verbally and uh, uh, in writing and in painting. He was a good painter. 
So that often goes hand in hand, though, because it's people are born with an ability in the artistic uh, jumble of synapses. Uh, very often go, can go from one art to the other. Right. Um, ever want me to do your taxes? <laughs> My brain doesn't go there. <laughs> right. You know. How about uh, Frank Zappa? I know uh, you, you work closely with him. Frank Zappa was L.A., and he thought the uh, San Francisco people were amusing. <laughs> he thought that, you know, it was all these hippies and everything. And he did a wonderful poster. Um, we were all doing, you know, posters. Uh, Muka, who was an artist, and we all liked that, and swirly and women with, you know, stars and moons and sure. all that kind of stuff. And <laughs> Zappa does a poster of him sitting on the toilet with his pants down around his ankles. I have it at my home, yes, indeed. Right, yeah, <laughs> but with the swirly kind of stuff around it, yeah. so it looks like... It looks like the posters of the time, but he happens to be sitting on a toilet. But see, I love that. Yeah, he had a great, great sense of humor. And Ted Nugent told me that Frank Zappa was one of the kindest people he'd ever met. Oh, yeah. And he was also a really good musician. Now, I don't read music. I mean, I can tell you there's an E on the bottom line of the treble clef, and that's about it. I mean, if I sit down at the piano and go up, I'll I'll be able to mark what they are. But I just play by ear. Mm-hmm. And uh, but he could arrange for an orchestra. So very few rock musicians had that going on until a little later. I think one of the guys in uh, uh, Toto is still writing for films. So the the L.A. guys, because it's so tough down here, it's a real you know dog eat dog thing. You got to be really good. You got to know your stuff to be a studio musician. And I think Toto, they were all studio musicians from L.A. But at the beginning, most of us were not really, uh, we didn't read music. We just uh, played by ear. But whether it was your singing grace uh, and, and, and the, your phrasing or the guitar playing in uh, uh, Yorma and, and Jack's bass playing, and you guys were still virtuosos. I think that that fact gets overlooked because you were song-oriented rather than chops-oriented. Yeah, uh, the lead guitar kind of has to be chop-oriented. Yeah, right. Uh, but <clears throat> uh, the reason I joined Airplane, actually, they um, was Jack Cassidy. Mm-hmm. I like bass end. I can hear treble just fine, but it's hard to hear bass end. And he played the bass. He kept the rhythm, but he played it like a lead guitar. Mm-hmm. That's what he had played before. He played lead guitar before he played bass. So he just brought that to it. And I and he had sustained notes that doom, 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 I don't like. Doom, doom, doom. You see how that's sustaining mm-hmm. from one note to the next. And he played the sustained note bass, and I just loved it. Right. And so when he was the one who asked me to join the band, and I thought, mm-hmm, I can do that. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. Well, one of my favorite drummers of all time that you worked with was uh, John Barbada, who I just think is the uh, incredible drummer. Yeah. We had a couple of good drummers. Uh, Spencer was good at, oh, at yeah. fills, but he wasn't a power drummer. Uh, uh, Ainsley Dunbar was a power drummer. Yeah, um, You know, John Barbada... Yeah, Barbada played the song very well, mm-hmm. and so did Craig Chikiso, who is not airplane, he's Starship. Right. But Craig Chikiso, it's very hard to get a lead guitar to to uh, tone it down. They always want to show you how many licks they can play. Right. And uh, Craig would play for the song very well. And uh, 
Spencer kind of played for the song. Mm-hmm. And then you get power drummers, which is good, too. That adds, That's a whole other element. When did you start painting? When I was about three. Um, I knew I could sort of paint or draw. My, I'd draw an angel, and my parents would make a Christmas card out of it or something. I sort of knew I could draw, but I only do one thing at a time. I'm not a multitasker, so if I'm uh, being in a rock and roll band, that's what I'm doing. That's it. Uh, and But Garcia, uh, a lot of musicians paint. Uh, Garcia painted, uh, Janice painted, uh, Ronnie Wood paints, blah, blah. Jimmy painted... Um, Garcia would take his paints and stuff on the road and I don't I'm absolutely focused on here's what I have to do and everything is aimed at that one thing whatever that one thing is now I paint I don't do anything else that's what I do Right. So I didn't. Real. I think I did an album cover uh, solo, uh, some dumb solo album that I did once. But um, for the most part, I didn't paint until after I stopped uh, being in a rock and roll band. I'd love to have you on again. Would you promise to come back on the show? Okay, we'll do this again if I'm not dead. And now we dig into the archives. For an interview with John Anderson, legendary vocalist of Yes, from July 25th, 2011, from my morning radio show. John Anderson, welcome to the program. How you doing? Your voice has been a part of my life since I was a wee lad. Yes, yeah, same with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, so this tour features a mix of material, and I'm thinking about your solo work the Yes music, your work with Vangelis, new material you'll be doing from Survival and other stories, your new album. How do you even begin to put together that set list? Well, I think of the audience and the songs that I think they would like to hear. Obviously, the Yes songs that I wrote, Starship Trooper, Long Distance Runaround, Roundabout, And You and I, and you know, songs that I think I love singing them, that's for sure. And uh, John and Vangelis songs, I have a couple in there. State of Independence and uh, Find My Way Home. And the other songs are new songs. And uh, I play a couple of songs on the dulcimer and the piano. Uh, I do some renditions of Close to the Edge and Topographic Oceans on the piano. Um, So then tell stories. So basically I'm trying to put on an entertaining evening because it's just me on stage, you know? Do you prefer that or is it just a different uh, different type of show? Well, it's just different. You know, I've been doing uh, concerts with full orchestras over the last uh, couple of years and uh, I've been doing sort of uh, concerts with people. I was over in, uh, in Slovakia last year and I sang with uh, about 12 guys. They wanted to do Close to the Edge, you know? Right. So they invited me over, and uh, I just uh, did some of my songs, and then we did Close to the Edge together. It was to celebrate uh, the end of the Russian Empire in Slovakia. So it was a very emotional thing. And, you know, yes, music has survived over the years, and uh, there are many different kinds of performances that I like to do. So at the moment, I love to go out... It's just me and my wife and a couple of guitars, and we drive around from city to city and do the show. It's a lot of fun. Yes is nothing if not ever evolving. What's your take on the current situation? Well, they, you know, they wanted to do what they're doing. It's not my idea of yes. Uh, you know, Chris likes to be the big boss at times. He's done it a couple of times. He did it 
oh gosh, 30 years ago with drama, and then he did it, um, I don't know, he's, he's done it on a couple of occasions, but he just gets into that place where he wants to run things, and you know, I'm very sort of, um, I like to do adventurous things, <laughs> it right. drives them crazy. Right. And that's your musical career, career has no boundaries, John. And, and I'm thinking of an artist like you. You've been able to do that because you came up at a time, I believe, when creativity and uniqueness was championed. What do artists today have to look forward to when they get signed to a label? Honestly, I think today is more adventurous than ever. You, you know, you can set up your own website, your own music outlet. You just go to people like TuneCore, it just costs uh, $20 a year for them to make sure your songs are every, on every uh, outlet like Amazon, iTunes, and so on. And you can make your own videos and uh, post them on YouTube. Uh, in, a, in a way, you don't need to join a record company to make it in this world. Uh, eventually, it's good to work with the big boys, and there's a couple of them still there, like Sony and... Uh, you know, but for the young musician, the, the door is wide open to do adventurous music and not really worry about trying to be a pop star because that's very fleeting in a way, you know? And it is fleeting. Uh, they're a dime a dozen and, and they kind of come and go and they're manipulated. But the people who last are always unique vision. John, if there's a recurrent theme that I get from your work, it's one of spirituality and hope. How would you describe your own spiritual path in life? Well, over the years, you know, I was lucky um, in my teens, I really was rebelling against uh, church and, and religions. And uh, I think in my 20s, I realized, hey, you know, they're all the same. They're all going to the same ocean. So you, you just got to find your own path. And I was fortunate enough to, to discover over a period of 10, 20 years, the path of, uh, I don't know, it, you know, we're all, we've all got the same light inside, and, and I just think uh, life is so beautiful and wonderful, and if you're lucky enough to enjoy every day of your life, you're, you, you, you'll become a better person, and you, you really, you know, that's what I think about, about hope for the future. I, I'm very excited about uh, next year, the year after, and things that are going to change our lives, and uh, I don't dwell on the, the the misery of life. There's a lots of it, but you don't want to dwell on that because you hope that things are going to change for those people in hard places and that their lives will turn around. So I'm very optimistic, you know? Yeah. And yes, music has always been optimistic. I think even from the title of the band, yes. Yeah. I think, you know, when we first started the band, I was always kind of wondering what I should write about, and I was never into writing about being a a rock star or, or, or singing about love and, and chicks and chasing the girls and <laughs> right. you know sex drugs and rock and roll was very well done by Rod Stewart right, and, right. and Mick Jagger so I just left it to them in those days and there's a lot of musicians following that path that's cool that's their path you know me I'm, I'm very into uh, I don't know modern music I'm very into orchestral music and things like that and uh Working with young teenagers, I'm very excited to do some uh, tours with, uh, they call it the School of Rock, you know, you get these young kids, you get 20 of them, and you take them on the road for three weeks, it's chaos, but it's wonderful chaos. Yeah, it is. 
Yeah, that's that's rock and roll. Wonderful chaos. I think that's a perfect yeah. appropriate <laughs> title. You know, I was getting ready for the interview last night, doing some research, and I was going through my record collection, and I was just looking at all the Yes albums and what they meant to me in my life. Fragile was a leap in my musical education. Uh, going for the one is still something I continue to go back to. I have a battered old vinyl copy of Relayer, which I recently bought because I've given that album away so many times to people. And then right. I came across Elias of Sun Hillow, and that's like a favorite book that I return to over and over. That's one of those records you have to listen to the whole thing. And it's uh, what are some of your favorite milestones of Yes? Well, I think just like you said, the Fragile, Close to the Edge, then Awaken, on Going for the One. Um, 5 was a lot of fun because, uh-huh. you know, we were mega famous and we had the number one around the world with all of a lonely heart. And it's it's kind of funny. Uh, you go through that experience without taking it too seriously, but it's a lot of fun to go through. Mm-hmm. And uh, my solo work, of course, Elias of Sun Hillow, I'm actually working on son of Elias, whose name is Zamran. So I'm, I'm actually moving along uh, and, and, and doing some very interesting things now along those lines of uh, solo work. But at the same time, my new album is working with people around the world via the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I got people to send me music. I put an advert on my website saying uh, Musicians Wanted, and uh, I got all these people sending me of their music and I picked out some of the really ones that connected with me and uh, they sent me music and I sing it and this is this album is the first of three albums of me singing with people all over the world so it's, it's an amazing adventure out there music yeah, it's a brilliant idea too and it's, and it's a great way to connect that's the beauty of the internet with musicians is we can connect from uh, thousands of miles away oh it's true yeah. You know, music is universal, and we're we're in this oneness of of living. We're very connected through the internet, thankfully, and uh, so you know things are going good. Right over the weekend, you know, we we're talking about the tragedies, um, the loss of someone like Amy Winehouse. Uh, you see someone with such beautiful talent and s- such a great songwriter and singer, and the traps that are out there for someone in the in the pop star life. I'm sure that yes was not uh, not always. Uh, immune you guys have survived well yeah for sure there was uh, there were times when I had to leave the band after 10 years you leave the band because of all that you know dr- too many drugs around you know too much outside influence from managers telling you oh you're not making enough money for me <laughs> yeah right and uh, can't you change your ways and be, be a bit more poppy and you know you just say I got to get out of this, you know. Yeah. And I was always quick to just uh, move, move to the left, and move on, and do something totally different. And that was, uh, you know, I, I had I had children; they've grown up now. But I had a family. I wasn't really willing to just sacrifice uh, wasting myself on tour and things like that because, you know, you have a family and they look up to you, and you got to keep going and develop as an artist. Mm-hmm. So. I was I was lucky in that respect. I never got into it. Your songs become part of people's lives, and I guess that's probably the best compliment an artist can uh, can get from a from an admirer. Yeah, it's it's like uh, I was lucky to meet you know various people through through my career, and I just reflect on when you meet people like uh, I met Randy Newman just a couple of weeks ago, and 
before I started, yes, I was listening to songs that he wrote because of he had an incredible uh, way of writing. And to me, that guy was such a dream. It was like, mm-hmm. I'm meeting this guy, I can't believe it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's what happens. You meet people along the way that really uh, change your your way of thinking. You know, you, you bump into them along the way, and uh, you realize that music does change your you know, change your understanding of life on, on so many levels. You talk about that. My sick, my daughter was she's eight now, but she was six when I turned around to the latter album, uh, the Yes album, the latter, which I think was criminally overlooked. It's just a beautiful record, and she loves the song "If Only You Knew." And she asked me, she said, "Daddy, can this be our song?" <laughs> I love it. And, it's just, and we play it all the time. She knows it and she loves it. So, yeah. And it is yeah. our song. It's our song indeed. And it, your music continues to inspire, and uh, you have no boundaries, and we appreciate that. People who enjoy great work, it's a real honor to talk to you, John. Excellent. I appreciate this very, very much. The Mike Tamano Happening.